0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. As you well know, this past week, a helicopter crashed carrying nine people. One of those was NBA superstar Kobe Bryant. In a matter of a few seconds, the candles of those nine lives were snuffed out. I want to share a story with you this morning about Kobe Bryant. I share it with you not because he was a perfect person, he certainly was not. In fact, there were times in his life that even he would say were well out of the boundaries of what he ought to have chosen. But I share this with you because what happened in the story is central to the point Jesus will make in the passage that we will read today. The story comes from the pen, or probably better stated, the computer of Andrew Joseph writing on usatoday.com. Joseph writes the following. In the days since Kobe Bryant's shocking death in a California helicopter crash, athletes across the world have come forward to share their fond memories of Kobe. But for many, Bryant's personal impact extended beyond a bond with athletes and celebrities. He impacted regular people, even in brief interactions. That was no more evident than in a recent Facebook post from Kristen O'Connor Hecht. O'Connor Hecht is the wife of a former Phoenix Suns Director of Corporate Partnerships. When Kristen worked at St. Joseph's Hospital and Medical Center in Phoenix, a cardiologist she worked with asked Kristen if her husband could see if the Lakers, ahead of a game in Phoenix, would sign a basketball for a terminally ill young fan who was named Kobe. Here's what O'Connor Hecht wrote on her Facebook post. So I have a story, she wrote. When we lived in Phoenix, frequently mine and Tom's paths would cross in our work. A pediatric cardiologist I worked with asked me if Tom could get an autographed something from the Lakers for a five-year-old dying patient who was named Kobe. He was from one of the reservations in Arizona where basketball is life. I called Tom at the Phoenix Suns, making the request. Believing that there would be virtually no way this would happen, the Lakers were coming to play the Suns later in the week. A day later, Tom called me and said, he'll do it. I was thrilled and thought I'd bring the ball or whatever it was to work. Tom said, no, he read your story, and he wants to come and meet the little boy. I was floored. But the next day, a limousine brought Kobe Bryant to my office. Under a cloak of secrecy, Neither security or PR people were informed. I got into a little trouble for that, but it was well worth it. The three of us scrambled up a back staircase to this little boy's room in cardiac ICU. For the better part of an hour, they played basketball, passing it back and forth with little Kobe laughing and his sweet mama smiling and laughing. Several autographed items were left, and many photos were taken. The machines that kept him alive were dinging and whirring and alarming, and his doc was just standing there grinning from ear to ear as Tom and I stood nervously watching this scene unfold before us. As we got back in the limo, Kobe Bryant turned to me and said, Kristen, what can I do to help? Is it a financial thing? Because I can take care of that. It wasn't. The little boy had a heart defect and was too ill for a transplant. I was floored. I was floored not only by his sincerity and offer of generosity, but the kindness and warmth he displayed. Little Kobe passed away the following week. About three weeks later, I got a letter from little Kobe's mom describing the power in those moments. She said those were the most joyful moments of his entire life. The photos were the only photos she had of him smiling. According to Kobe Bryant's PR people, he did this everywhere, but the deal was no PR. From that day on, he has been my hero. And when people would tell me they didn't like him, I would say, let me tell you a story. Whatever you might think of Kobe Bryant, the sentence in the story makes a point Jesus wants to make. Did you catch that sentence? It's toward the very end of the story. It's a sentence that says, according to Kobe's people, he did this everywhere. But the deal was, no PR that sentence changes everything. If I had stood up here and told you a story about Kobe Bryant doing exactly what he was doing, but doing it before the television cameras and the flashing cameras, the ever-hungry eye of the media, the impact would have been totally different. It's that line. He did this everywhere, but... The deal was no PR. Jesus is going to make that point in the passage we read today. A passage in Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. But before we read the passage, just to remind you of a couple of things. We're in a series, a series entitled Back to Basics. We're going back to those basic realities of our discipleship journey with Jesus, placing our belief and trust in Jesus, coming to him in repentance. And then the three sermons. We're in the second of those three right now that are a mini-series within the series. How do we live the discipleship journey? What are the basic realities of how to walk with Jesus every day? Three realities form the answer. One, listening listening to the voice of God in Scripture, two, speaking, speaking to God in prayer, and three, action, doing something about what we got out of the first two. Today we're on the second of those three, on the speaking, on the praying part. Now in Matthew, the sixth chapter, if you turn there, you will discover we are settling down right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in this context is discussing the three chief acts of Jewish piety. They would become acts of Christian piety as well. But the three chief acts of Jewish piety were giving to the needy, prayers, and fasting. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And if you read the entire section including his statements on all three of those, you will discover in there a paraphrase of that line, do this all the time, but No PR. This is something between you and God. This is not something to be done in front of everyone else for their praise and adulation. So since we're going back to basics, I want to ask you to do something for me today. I want to ask you if you would do an inventory, an assessment on your prayer life. As we talk together here, just assess the questions. Asking, where is my prayer life? Prayer is one of those most basic realities of our discipleship journey with Jesus. How is your prayer life? I think we can get a fairly good handle on how our prayer life is by answering three questions. Three questions that Jesus will answer in his own way in the words we will read. Here are the three questions Is my prayer life humble and heartfelt? Two, is my prayer life simple and direct? Three, is my prayer life large and grand? So those are our three questions. I want to invite you to do an assessment just between your own soul and God. No PR, nobody else looking in on you. But before we do that, we have to read the words of Jesus. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Could I ask you to do what the children did this morning with me? It's on the screen. Would you say it with me together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now the prayer ends at that point, but there are a couple of other verses. Or if you forgive others when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So how is it with your prayer life? In order to assess that, ask the first question. Is my prayer life humble and heartfelt? Humble and heartfelt. I want to reread the opening words of this passage, but this time in the words of the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, The Message. Listen to how Peterson renders it, Jesus speaking, and when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom, you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, slick, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense His grace. Is your prayer life humble and heartfelt? It's so easy, particularly, particularly in public prayers, for us to put on a show, a show of our piety, a show of our intimacy with God, a show of the fact that we have a relationship with God that ought to be emulated, that others ought to admire. God, Jesus says, is not interested in any of that. He says, do it in your closet if you have to. Do it in a private, secluded place, but let your prayer be humble and heartfelt just the prayer of one soul to God how is it with your prayer life In fact, the goal, I think, of of prayer as a person comes before God is the goal to lay his or her soul completely open and bare before our Creator. This is who I am. It's not a pretty picture this week. I didn't even achieve the standard I wanted to achieve for myself, much less the standard you have for me. I fell far short of it. And because of that, I'm bowing in humility. Would you just, out of your great and merciful grace, take me as I am? Humble and heartfelt. Sometimes that's hard. It's hard because we don't see ourselves as God sees us. We don't have a problem seeing others with a critical eye. But sometimes we have that problem with ourselves. And therefore our prayers become very superficial. But if you have that sense of your mortality and your finitude before God, you can come before God in heartfelt humility. Been a month ago, two months probably. Right here in this sanctuary, I had the privilege of talking to our students at a chapel service. I shared with them something I'd like to share with you today. It's about the late, great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German scholar and theologian comes from the book on Bonhoeffer written by Eric Metaxas. Bonhoeffer, pastor, prophet, martyr, spy. There was a moment, says Metaxas, in Bonhoeffer's life when he and another young man, he and a friend, went to visit Paris. Went to see the lights in the City of Lights. It was a wonderful week despite the fact that it rained most of the week. While they were there in Paris, they went to the Louvre several times to see the magnificent artwork there displayed. They also went to the opera. They saw Rigoletto and Carmen. They enjoyed their week in Paris. But there was a moment when they went to church, and it was that moment that I want to highlight to you. In fact, I want to highlight it to you not by Metaxas's words, but words of Bonhoeffer's from his own pen quoted by Metaxas. Listen to what Bonhoeffer said. On Sunday afternoon, he said, I attended an extremely festive high mass in sacre Coeur. The people in the church were almost exclusively from Montmartre. Prostitutes and their men went to mass, submitted to all the ceremonies. It was an enormously impressive picture. And once again, one could see quite clearly how close, precisely through their fate and guilt, these most heavily burdened people are to the heart of the gospel. I have long thought that Berlin's red light district would be an extremely fruitful field for church work. Now listen carefully to what Bonhoeffer says next. It's much easier for me to imagine a praying murderer, a praying prostitute, than a vain person praying. Nothing is so at odds with prayer as vanity. Do you know what our temptation would be? If, to use Bonhoeffer's term, those men and those prostitutes came in and sat down among us, our temptation would be to elbow each other and say, what are they doing here? How dare they come into church knowing who they are? That wasn't Bonhoeffer's thought. Bonhoeffer's thought when he saw them was... That's a person who can truly enter into the spirit of prayer. That humble, heartfelt prayer that comes before God saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's prayer. He says, I can more easily imagine a murderer, a prostitute praying than a vain person. The person who is out of the corner of their eye saying, where's the camera? Where's the P.O.? Who's watching? Who's listening? Jesus says, no. If that's your prayer life, then you have some shrinking to go because true prayer is humble and heartfelt. Question number one, to assess how's your prayer life. Question number two, is your prayer life simple and direct? Not just humble and heartfelt, but is your prayer life simple and direct? Once again, I want to go back to the message to capture the essence of this through the words of Eugene Peterson. Jesus speaking again says... The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. God, in other words, is not interested in ornamented, ornate prayers with up-to-date language, with the most high-sounding phrases. God says, just be simple and direct with me. I'm your father. When you went out to eat last week with that friend and you sat across the table from each other, you didn't spend a lot of time trying to craft what you said to each other so it would just sound perfectly right and would be memorable. It's your friend. If you spend your time at your lunch doing that, your lunches will be short-lived. Some of you may remember. may remember Tony Campolo. I think he even said it from this platform, if my memory is not mistaken. Talking about this very issue of prayer, Campolo said, You know how many try to pray. They come before God, their Father, Abba. They come before God, O oh, great and high creator of the universe, thou who hast existed from all time and will exist into all time. O oh, the great and glorious God of the... Campolo says, I cannot imagine my son coming to me and saying to me, O oh, great chair of the sociology department of Eastern College, O oh, thou great speaker, O oh, thou great one in my life, would you lend me the car? <laughs> Prayer says Jesus is simple and direct leave all the other high-sounding terms and phrases for someone else this is your father you're talking to simple direct now some of your versions if you were reading them, you noticed translate it this way Jesus says don't keep babbling like the pagans don't keep babbling that's an interesting term. I want to read to you the words of James Montgomery Boyce as he tries to unpack, unpack what Jesus is trying to say there. Montgomery Boyce says, Jesus is not condemning long prayers in these verses since he himself spent long nights and many hours in prayer. What he is condemning is vain repetition. The Greek word is batalogeo, probably from the Aramaic batal, meaning idol. It is a warning against vain words in praying. Sadly, many religious prayers are like this. Indeed, we can even be idle in our repetition of the so-called Lord's Prayer, which follows these verses. We should remember that the slang term pitter-patter, which means nonsense, in English comes from the Latin words that begin the Lord's Prayer, paternoster and are an observation on how meaningless the empty repetition of even these famous words has sometimes seemed to unbelievers. Augustine was right on track when he properly distinguished between much speaking in prayer and much praying. So here's what Augustine is saying. You can have one person here who's doing a lot of talking in their prayer, a lot of words. And you can have a person over here who's doing a lot of praying. How does that work? Maybe yesteryear's great preacher from the United Kingdom, Charles Haddon Spurgeon answers it best. When he said, a prayer is not measured by its length, but by its weight. Spurgeon went on to say, A single, profound, heartfelt groan before God weighs much more than a lengthy and fine oratorical prayer. So the question is, is what's in your heart coming out in the most simple, unedited way as possible? You want to read unedited, at least insofar as I can see it? Read what some of the psalmists had to say. They said things we wouldn't dare to say. Called God on the carpet. God, are you going to sit up there all day, never do anything? When will you act? When will you answer my prayer? When will you listen to me? Must I always cry out and hear only silence? But then it was as though something in their soul was purged because time and again after that, they said, nevertheless, God, you're my only companion. You're the only place I can turn. You're the only hope I have. So our eyes are on you, God. Simple. That's prayer. So how's your prayer life? As we go back to basics, it's good to do an assessment of all the basics. But today of prayer, is your prayer life humble and heartfelt? Is your prayer life simple and direct? Third question to help us assess our prayer life is your prayer life large and grand in other words when you pray is it all about you when I pray is it all about me and our bundle of needs I need I need I need I need thank you see you later is it all just about us do we pray for anyone beyond the boundaries of our own property is there anyone in this church who's experienced a loss, and you know there are others who occupy these pews who are actively praying for you? Do we pray, God, just keep our sick, our kids safe until the day of their death? Just keep them safe. Or do our prayers get larger? Make them deep people. Give them great courage. Let them make a difference for God in the world. even if it costs them. Are your prayers large and grand? After all, that prayer that we just vocalized, verbalized together, the Lord's Prayer, I was struck this week looking at commentary after scholar, one after another, by how many of them would say in their own words, the burden of this prayer is the kingdom of God. That's the burden of this prayer. Yes, it does have requests, our daily bread, forgive our debts, etc., that are for us. But those requests come straight out of the fact that when the kingdom of God is present, that's what happens. Because the overall burden of the prayer is for the coming of the kingdom. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the burden of the prayer. And that includes, as by way of example, that includes the fact that when the kingdom of God comes, God bestows his forgiveness. But if you are to participate in that kingdom, you must bestow it on others. The burden of the prayer is the kingdom of God. So we have to ask when it comes time to assess our own prayer lives, are my prayers minute and small or are they large and grand? Do they take in the world? The kingdom of God has been defined by Dallas Willard as being any space, any place where the will of God is done. So as we pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth, we are in essence praying, God, please let your will be carried out. And as we make that our earnest prayer, we then rise from our knees to go out, allowing God to use us for the kingdom to become present in the world. So we have to ask, are our prayers large and grand? It was the scholar, the theologian Karl Barth who said, Folding your hands in prayer is your first act of rebellion against the disorder of the planet. Your first act of protest happens when you fold your hands in prayer. You don't like the state of the world, the state of the country, the state of the city? Then pray your first act of protest, but your prayers have to be large. They have to be grand, like Sergei's prayers. Sergei's story is told in Philip Yancey's book. His book entitled, Prayer does It Make a Difference. It's in that book. In a place, in a chapter, where he is dealing with that subtitle, Does Prayer Make a Difference?, that Yancey includes Sergei's story. Sergei grew up in the former communist bloc of the Soviet Union. As he lived behind the rusting iron curtain, Sergei says, We prayed. I want you to listen to Sergei's own words. He says, Those of us who lived under under communism know well the power of prayer." My father worked on Soviet rockets in Siberia, and I grew up under the propaganda of atheism and communism. We were constantly told that our system was better than the West, even though we all knew the opposite. No one could even imagine that communism would someday fall and that the Soviet Union would break apart. Even today, few give credit to what I believe was the real force, the power of prayer. All over Eastern Europe, the church organized peace marches with people power marching in the streets and holding candles. No one fought a war. Very few shots were fired. Yet the mighty Soviet empire came crashing down. By that time, my family had settled in the Ukraine, and since then we have seen our own orange revolution bring down a corrupt government. That revolution in 2004 spread mainly through text messages on cell phones. Since then, we Christians have organized a national prayer time at 10 o'clock every night to pray for our country. We've organized in groups of three, triplets, to teach one another to pray, to teach one another to pray. You see, he says, most of us have only known the long, formal, boring prayers we hear in churches. We are just now discovering the privilege of talking to God as a friend. He continues... I've heard incredible stories of faith in Ukraine and from its neighbors. One friend of mine in Moldova used to tell his atheist parents that he was heading to the outdoor bathroom. Then he would jump over the fence and go pray with his neighbor. Sometimes Christians got baptized in frozen lakes after chopping through the ice. Foreign visitors smuggled in books and Bibles, which we distributed according to an elaborate secret system. Many, many pastors spent time in prison for their work with the church. But now that we are free, we are in danger of growing complacent, of not treasuring the freedom to worship. In fact, Christians in parts of the former Soviet Union have actually voted for the communists to return to power because the church was so much more pure in those days. It seems we handle persecution. Better than prosperity. I, for one, pray we never have to return to those days. I pray that we will learn to praise God for what we have rather than to have to plead for it. Prayer, says Sergey. He believes, he believes, it contributed mightily to the collapse of that empire. So I have to ask you, How's your prayer life? One of the questions to ask is, are my prayers large and grand? Talking to God about things that have little to do with me, but much to do with his kingdom in the world. So we've come back to basics. Today we're assessing prayer. Is your prayer life humble and heartfelt? Is your prayer life simple and direct? Is your prayer life large and grand? If you say yes to those things, then the only thing I would say to you is keep praying. Just keep praying. Keep going to your knees in those ways. But if you say, well, I could use some help. I could use some direction. I could use some guidance. Then I have two suggestions. Suggestion number one, simple suggestion, get involved in prayer with others. You can stop, for example, by the Welcome Center on the way out. Our prayer ministers team has provided just a few simple resources for prayer. Some bookmarks with thoughts on it and passages about how to pray, some other materials there. You can even join our prayer team Tuesday and Friday morning at 6 a.m. on the prayer line to pray together with others. First suggestion, maybe get some help. can benefit us. Second suggestion is this. I invite you to reach into the hymnal rack in the pew right in front of you and take out the little Back to Basics card, just a business-sized card. Make sure each person on your row receives one. And I want to ask if you would think about if you would consider in a moment signing that card. Last week, I gave you a suggestion straight from a book by Justin Whitmel Early, a book entitled The Common Rule. Last week's suggestion was Scripture Before Phone. I borrow a second suggestion from Early, and that's what's on your card. Today, I make a commitment. Today, I make a commitment to kneeling prayer three times a day. Today, I make a commitment to kneeling prayer three times a day. The reason is simple if we engage in a tangible act that distinguishes what we're doing from any other thing in our life at that moment in time, it tends to focus us. So morning, noon, and night, kneeling prayer. It's much easier in the morning when you wake up or in the bed before you go to bed. You simply kneel by your bed. But the other is sometime during your busy day, maybe close the door to your office, go down to the break room, Find an outdoor place that is private and secluded and just kneel, just kneel and open your heart to God, as Ellen White says, as to a friend. That's prayer. I want to do anything in my life and encourage you to do anything in your life to move us further down the road that G.K. Chesterton spoke of. G.K. Chesterton, that English writer, philosopher, and lay theologian, said this. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert in the opera, and grace before the play in pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In other words, he says, I'm saying grace all of my life. That's what Jesus calls us to, to a continual communion with God. But maybe we can make that more tangible. If we commit, I'll make the commitment along with you to kneeling prayer three times a day. If you would like to make that commitment, just reach for the pen that's in the rack right in front of you and sign and date that and then take that card with you. Put it where you can see it, that you might live it out in ways that are humble and heartfelt, in ways that are simple and direct, in ways that are large and grand. Because in the mind of Jesus, that is true prayer.